0: I'm Cameron Sillsby, and this is the Van City Podcast. The following teaching is part four of our series, Fighting the World, the Flesh, and the Devil. Satan and those aligned with him wage war against God by using lies, half-truths, and deception. The scriptures paint a stark picture of how far-reaching those effects are. In the age of fake news, social media influencers, and Christian fundamentalism, how should followers of Jesus understand culture? All right, my friends, Galatians chapter 4. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. As I said, we're going through this series called Fighting the World, the Flesh, and the Devil. We are currently uh, in the first section of the series focusing on the devil and how he operates. Uh, Two weeks ago, Josh walked us through the idea of the divine counsel. If you weren't here for it, please go back and listen to it on the podcast. It provides a really valuable paradigm for what we're talking about tonight. Um, But as a quick recap, Josh worked through the scriptures helping us understand the existence of other spiritual beings and their interaction with reality. Uh, God's design of the universe was one in which he chose to delegate authority and power to created beings who had genuine free will. Uh, Some of these created beings took that authority and power and using their free will rebelled against God while some did not. Humans uh, are part of the former, uh, joining the rebels set against God and uh, his kingdom. One of the names the New Testament calls this group of rebels, both human and non-human, is the dominion or kingdom of darkness, which I know sounds kind of dramatic, but it's for good reason. Uh, The chief rebel who holds the title of the Satan operates to undermine and destroy God's work in creation. His tool of choice is lying. He uses deception, disinformation, and untrue ideas in order to wage war against God, bringing about evil, darkness, suffering, and destruction. And it can be easy to swallow in the abstract, uh, but how does that all really play out in our culture, in the bigger picture of things? Is Fox News or CNN responsible for the age of fake news? Is Disney Pixar inserting subliminal pro-LGBTQ ideas into their movies in order to secretly shape the generation to come? Is gender and sexual orientation fluid and varied or binary and fixed? Can you trust anyone running for or holding political office these days? Are humans fundamentally good or fundamentally evil? And is there even any ultimate truth? Or is truth defined by individuals and cultures? These questions are all answered confidently by various people in various ways claiming to be holding on to and fighting on the side of truth. And these truth claims affect how we live, think, and follow Jesus. Who's behind all of that? We're gonna be doing a lot of Bible and theology tonight, so get ready to do some heavy lifting. But I promise uh, we'll get to the application and kind of tie it all together towards the end. Are you guys ready? Okay, let's do this. Galatians chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 1. Paul wrote, what I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. Okay, so stop right there. Uh, Galatians is a letter from Paul to a church or a group of churches in the region of Galatia, kind of comparable to if Paul was writing a letter to a church or a whole group of churches in Clark County. Um, and he was writing the letter to correct the churches who had began, begun to incorporate Jewish law from the Torah as obligatory to keep in order to follow Jesus. So, if you were, say, a 28-year-old male uh, who just rejected paganism and wanted to follow Jesus, then you had to be circumcised in order to do so. You know, those sorts of little things. In response to these things, Paul writes this letter and begins uh, to detail how the Old Testament law relates to followers of Jesus. So, tonight we're jumping in mid-thought in Paul's letter because he's about to say some really... um, shocking things honestly Uh, with that in mind look down again and let's read what Paul is saying what I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage he is no different from a slave although he owns the whole estate the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father so also when we were underage we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world Paul, using an analogy from his day, compares the Old Testament law as if it's a trustee of an estate. So you're a young man of 14 in Galatia, your family is wealthy, but your f- uh, father falls ill and dies. You, as the only son, inherit everything. Um, but uh, I think we all understand that handing a 14-year-old the equivalent of millions of dollars worth of assets and property is a really bad idea. Uh, So, just look at Justin Bieber. I'm sorry, I didn't want to say that, but uh, I'll just blame it on the spirit. Um, so, (laughs) So, a trustee is set up in order to manage the estate with wisdom until you, as the son, are deemed old enough to run it yourself. The trustee had the authority, even though you are the son and heir. You have little to no authority. So Paul is saying that the Old Testament law was like the trustee of the estate until the time of maturity, or in Paul's mind, uh, the coming of Jesus. But do not miss the last sentence he wrote. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. What the heck is he talking about? Okay, so there's a lot of debate over what Paul means by the Greek phrase Stoikeia to kosmon, translated here as the elemental spiritual forces. It could be understand, uh, understood as the basic elements of the world, like wind and fire and water and rock, uh, or it could be the elemental teachings of the world, like the ABCs of philosophy or religion, or... It could be spiritual beings exercising power and authority over people. All these positions, various scholars hold. What I would argue is that in some way, it seems to be all three, and let me explain why. Um, Do you guys know what the word syncretism means? Um, No worries if you don't. It's kind of uh, used a lot in the context of missionaries, um, and especially missionaries to different cultures. Syncretism is the blending of differing religions into an amalgamation of one. So, for instance, if you took the good news of Jesus to a predominantly Muslim village, the tendency of the villagers could be to blend to just blend Jesus into Islam or Islam into following Jesus, which would maybe hypothetically require you to still pray five times a day facing Mecca in order for God to, like, hear and accept your prayers. Um, or maybe you still have to fast for Ramadan uh, to ensure that you have enough forgiveness to cover your sins, uh, those, those sorts of things. but syncretism isn't just for missionaries overseas Uh, it can happen here in our culture I would say uh, confidently that the prosperity gospel that teaches obedience and faith in Jesus will make you materially wealthy is actually uh, the result of syncretism between capitalism and Christianity What seems to have been taking place in Galatia is syncretism, both with Judaism and the keeping of the Old Testament law, and also pagan religion and philosophy. What Paul seems to be saying is that something was enslaving people through these religious and philosophical practices. Was it just ideas um, that were enslaving people or something more? We'll answer that in a minute, but let's continue reading to see God's response to the elemental spiritual forces. Look down with me at verse 4 of Galatians chapter 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out abba father so you are no longer a slave but god's child and since you are his child god has made you also an heir oh man so uh, this is one of my favorite passages in all of the scriptures and we do not have time to do it justice tonight so just a couple things to note um god answers humanity's enslavement by coming to redeem or another way to say that would be to purchase us off the slave market in order to give us freedom, Um, right? It says that, in order to give us freedom. Does it say that? Not exactly, actually. Uh, It says, Paul says that uh, instead of being purchased off the slave market to freedom, we are purchased into adoption, into sonship, into inheritance. To Paul, that is where true freedom is found, And and this adoption was for men and women. Uh, The reason Paul doesn't say we are adopted as sons and daughters but just as sons is because daughters had little to no standing in society. So Paul sees the good news of Jesus subverting that injustice against women by saying that you are adopted, both men and women, as sons of our Father. There are no second-class children in God's family. It's a beautiful answer by God to humanity's enslavement, adoption, sonship, and inheritance. But let's keep reading in Paul's letter. Look down with me at verse eight. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? These two verses, in my mind, are key to understanding what the elemental spiritual forces are. For Paul, the things enslaving the Galatians are regarded as lowercase g gods, but aren't actually in nature gods. Um, He describes them as weak and miserable and also to enslave people. So weak doesn't mean powerless or without ability to act. This sounds to me like spiritual beings masquerading as gods that are powerful and deserving of worship but are in all reality not. They seem to be spiritual beings in line with Satan and the kingdom of darkness. And listen to this implication. These entities are using philosophy, pagan religion, and even usurping God's intent in giving the Old Testament law all with the aim of enslaving people. What Paul seems to be assuming is that if a person is not following Jesus, then through religion or philosophy, and when I say philosophy, don't think necessarily like the academic stuff, uh, but even the phrase you do you is a philosophy to live by. So through religion or philosophy, these forces are enslaving everyone. And to Westerners like ourselves, this can sound kind of at best ridiculous and at worst highly offensive. I have a small group of friends who are old coworkers. We go and grab coffee or whatever from time to time. And I can just imagine like saying to them, listen, uh, you are all enslaved right now to Satan in the kingdom of darkness. And the only way you can be freed is through Jesus and adoption to God the Father. And I imagine that their response probably wouldn't be favorable. Just a guess, but I I think that would be accurate. Surely, we can't make such an assumption based on one section and one letter written 2,000 years ago, right? Uh, Maybe just a smidge of superstition crept into Paul's writing. Or maybe I'm reading too much into it. Well, uh, you might have a point if there wasn't also all this next slide. Pretty please. Thank you. Uh, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Or, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. or, The great dragon was hurled down that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. Or this one. Jesus speaking to his disciples. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. And then Satan makes this claim himself. He says this. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus, in response, uh, does not push back on Satan's claim. So, it seems the scriptures don't have an issue with the wide-ranging effect Satan and the kingdom of darkness has on the world. It's very comfortable to make these sorts of claims. But what does that mean for us? Uh, a few weeks ago, you and your Van City community worked through this paradigm sheet uh, about the lies that you believe, um, at least in theory you did. Um, and while I was working through it myself, um, I came to a question number five, how is this lie normalized in our sinful society? And I had a really hard time kind of answering that. The lie I was working through was uh, that God is not safe to approach when I feel like my life is a mess. And so when I hit that question, I thought, like, this sounds kind of like very Trumpian, the news media is lying to slash fundamentalist, the culture is satanic, Um, and and it was hard to answer. And and when we went through this uh, in my community, um, my group had a really hard time answering this question for themselves. This question, what's it implying? Is culture satanic? Is it poisonous? Is it always lying to us? Or is it innocuous, tame, and safe to participate in? There's been a popular idea that has permeated and come to be known as like a millennial thing. Uh, it's the idea of being an influencer. So you have like Instagram stars who, who are deemed as culture influencers, so are pop authors and musicians and even mega church pastors. And then within the like millennial church context, this comes with the idea of influencing culture for Jesus essentially. What's interesting is it's almost the opposite of Christian fundamentalism, which assumed that culture was so evil that we had to try to avoid it as much as possible and create a Christian culture that was apart and distinct from normal culture. So there's these competing ideas from like a spiritual perspective on culture. Um, Kind of this idea simplistically boiled down is humans create culture, culture influences human, humans, God influences culture, Satan influences culture, and if you're a Christian fundamentalist, then Satan is winning the culture wars and you need to run from culture. But if you're more of like a millennial influencer, God is winning in the culture, and you need to jump in full in in order to partner with him in what he is doing. And there's some truth in this concept of culture. But I think a more accurate depiction is something more like this: Um, You have individuals who are made in God's image, who are endowed with the abilities and uh, and the uh, chance to just even do culture, and yet they're also bent and sinful. And so you have uh, individuals uh, who are made in the image of God, bent and sinful influencing and creating culture. And so culture right off the bat is going to be a mixed bag. And then you have on the right side, God and the kingdom of God and people in God's kingdom. And that is influencing both individuals and culture, and then some people, some of those individuals decide to join God and become citizens in his kingdom, and then they then influence other individuals and culture, and then on the left side, you have Satan and elemental spiritual forces and more people, and they're influencing individuals and culture, and it kind of goes on like this. My point is it's really, really complicated who's doing what in culture, What we see is that culture uh, influences us, and it can do it um, in in good ways via the influence of God and his kingdom, and it can be used uh, in bad ways via the influence of Satan and the kingdom of darkness. So the question is, what should our response be to it? Fundamentalism and like a retreat from culture or a millennial influencer and an embrace? Turn over uh, with me to Ephesians chapter 6. It's just like a few pages to the right in your Bible. Um, We're going to start reading in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 6. How are you guys doing? You doing all right? Tracking? Yeah, great. Ephesians chapter 6. Starting in verse 10 Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of what? Truth, right? Yep, truth. Uh, Buckled around your waist and on Paul lists what the armor entails. So uh, a ton going on here. First off, who is our struggle not against? yeah flesh and blood people right the language tone and narrator narrative of the scriptures and especially the new testament is not that people apart from jesus are my enemy no they are they are those who need to be freed from slavery within the kingdom of darkness they need rescuing Our struggle is not against humans, but against spiritual powers behind the evil in the world. That's kind of a paraphrase of what Paul lists there. These spiritual beings rule. They have authority. They have power. Their aim is to create darkness and evil, and that is our enemy, not people. Second, how many times does it say stand in the section we just read? Four. That's all right. I counted ahead of time, so I cheated. Four times it says stand. In Greek, you don't have underlining or exclamation marks or anything like that. So when you want to emphasize something, you repeat it. And a repetition of three is usually like a a huge emphasis. Um, And yet Paul repeats the word stand four times in this section. To fundamentalists and... More importantly, maybe the desire within us, each one of us, to retreat and run from the enemy or to respond with apathy, the command is clear. Stand. Do not run. Do not lie down. Do not go to sleep. Stand up and stand firm. Why? Paul says we have a struggle. Or you could tr- uh, translate that Greek word "pale" as battle. Uh, we are going into battle, so put on the full armor, in, in the words of Paul, so that when the day of evil comes, not if, but when it comes, we can stand. To the millennial influencer and the desire in all of us to participate in culture with little to no thought, to enter into culture is to enter into a war zone, and to do so without armor is foolishness. Culture is not to be embraced and trifled with. It's not tame and innocuous. It's a battleground against cosmic, powerful evil and darkness. So don't run and don't embrace. Get ready to fight the enemy. Lastly, what's that first piece of armor, Paulus, once again? Truth, yes, the belt of truth. One of the ways we protect ourselves in this battle is with truth. Why would we need, to, why would we need truth? Because the enemy uses lies. Remember from a f- few weeks ago, as Jesus said of Satan, lying is his native language. Can I give you a broad example of this back and forth battle in culture over influence? Uh, maybe just having something tangible to hold on to will help this kind of settle in. The cultural narrative in America is that we abolished systemic slavery back in the 1860s after a horrific Civil War. Slavery that, you know, we kind of picture and imagine like that horrific stuff. Um, And and slavery has been been done away with except in tiny dark corners of the world and in kind of individual isolated cases. Systemic slavery has been destroyed and that's one cultural narrative. And for Christians, they look to a man like William Wilberforce who spent decades using politics uh, to fight against slavery in England and, and he finally won out towards the end of his life. You know, he's kind of held up as like a real, true Christian hero who helped end systemic slavery. And there's definitely uh, quite a bit of truth in those narratives. Uh, However, hear me out. Uh, The whole truth of the situation is that Americans and Christians who use a smartphone to look up all of this historical information are using a device that contains essential elements mined from the earth by modern day slaves in Africa. This is what they look like, a photographer. This is in the Democratic Republic of Congo, two children working in a mine, getting those materials to make our electronics. Real people. The chair that um, these Americans or Christians are sitting on while doing this historical research or even the clothes that they're wearing while they're doing this are most likely made by modern day slaves in Asia who are paid next to nothing and who look you know, something like this. If the cultural assumption is that all systemic slavery has been destroyed over a hundred years ago, then there's no reason to care where our stuff comes from. And thank God that African slavery was done away with inside the West, but the darkness and evil reality of slavery is alive and thriving and we're still profiting off of it. Now that's just one example of lies and half truths in our culture leading directly to evil and darkness, and, and that's a big picture cultural narrative. But these lies can also be personally hindering and destructive as well. So my role for the church, as I said, was heading up our Van City communities and doing people work—you know, meeting with people, being responsive to people's struggles, all that good stuff—and I love doing it. And grateful that God has entrusted me with this responsibility for my brothers and sisters. It's a joy. Um, this responsibility has provided me with a front row seat to like the lies that people believe because of our culture. And how I suspect uh, these lies are mostly drawn from culture is that I keep seeing the same kinds of problems people are struggling with. There are narrative narratives believed lies internalized and truth needing to destroy the lives that starts to repeat again and again over the past two and a half years so to end tonight i just want to go through two of the most prominent lies i've seen over the last two and a half years and speak truth of uh over them if either one of either one of them or both of them resonate with you. It's not to bring condemnation on you or to shame you. This is our opportunity to confront these lies together and struggle together against what the enemy wants to do in our lives. You guys ready? Okay, let me just invite the Holy Spirit to just focus our minds. Holy Spirit, we want you to speak into these. Uh, We want you to speak truth. Uh, Would you just calm our minds and our hearts so that we can receive from you in this moment? Thank you. So I see fear as a huge issue that we all struggle with, but particularly when it comes to failure. Our culture prizes success, and our culture defines success, and that definition permeates so much of our lives. And the pressure is really intense, guys. If you don't have your career figured out, if you don't have a degree, if you don't own a house by the time you're 30, then you're a failure. Something is wrong with you. And what I see in Jesus' call is to lose our lives in order to find them. It's to take the low position and be the servant of all. It's to trust him. And fear comes into play when we don't trust Jesus and his way of living. Fear that you don't actually matter, that you don't measure up, that you are a failure. And fear uh, can often look like kind of grasping at straws. Um, It's the desperate attempt to make something different happen and I see this often with people's desired career paths and it's something I've struggled with myself. I I worked at a grocery store for 11 and a half years and it was my first job after high school and I promised myself I would never be a lifer at the store like some of the old grumpy employees. So every year I'd be like, this is the year I'm getting out of here. And so I went through seasons where I desperately applied to other jobs, but they just never panned out for one reason or another. And year after year, I stayed on because it was just enough to pay our bills and to provide us with good health insurance. And it was, uh, it was almost always awkward when I would run into people I used to like, go to high school with. Um, you exchange pleasantries, and then you do the comparison thing by saying, hey, so what are you up to now? You know. Um, and honestly, it seemed like every time, uh, without fail, uh, they would tell me about stories of university and degrees and pretty well-paying careers. Um, and then they would ask me, and I'm just standing there in my Fred Meyer uniform with my name tag on, the answer is pretty obvious, but um, I would say something like, yeah, you know, I'm working here at Fred Meyer, but I also play in a local band, which I did for three years. Or, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm here at Fred Meyer, but I'm also going to school for political science to work for the CIA. Don't laugh, I know, I, <laughs> that's great. Um, I did that, I pursued that for two and a half years. Um, or, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm working at Fred Meyer, but I'm, I'm also the youth pastor at my church, which I, which I did for three years. And, and those things were all true, but the reality was that I was essentially putting yogurt on the shelf for, for uh, 40 hours a week to pay my bills. Uh, and, and I hated that. I didn't have a career. I hadn't finished college. I felt like a failure. Uh, I struggled with despair at times. And it wasn't always bad, don't get me wrong, but it was definitely up and down. And sometimes even daily, you know, encouragement would be met uh, by discouragement. And I had a lot of whys, like why was God having me here in this place? I was trying to follow him faithfully. Why was I just putting yogurt on a shelf for 40 hours a week? And yet God was faithful to lead me in each step. I had had and still have an amazing wife who was very encouraging and patient with me. I, I felt a draw towards helping to lead a church, and opportunities would pop up over the years. Notice. It took a long time, but uh, opportunities would pop up over the years to learn and grow and have more responsibility in a church setting, uh, and yet I still put yogurt on a shelf for 40 hours a week. And one day, uh, I was thinking about all this and getting frustrated at God, uh, at God for where he had me in, in life. I was like, I'm faithful to you. What are you doing? And it felt like he asked me, if I asked you to work at Fred Meyer for the rest of your life, would you still follow me? and the question just terrified me. Uh, I remember going home and telling Hannah about it and just being so scared about that possibility. And and my answer, of course, was yes, um, but I had to really, really work through that, work through the desire I had to be honored by other people because of what I did for a job. Uh, I had to work through trusting God with my life. Uh, It forced me to confront my fear of being a failure In fact, it forced me to redefine success from accomplishment to faithfulness. My success is found in faithfulness to what Jesus asks me to do, not what culture tells me I must accomplish. And looking back now, Jesus really used my time at Fred Meyer effectively. He shaped me in more ways than I probably even know through it. He used me to teach patience and humility, um, although I have a ton, ton, way, way more to grow in that. But he certainly did that in that time. Um, He taught me and developed my passion for evangelism. He led me to use the early mornings that I worked to pop in my earbuds and listen to seminary courses and lectures and teachings over a span of five years just nerding out, which then made it possible for me to test into seminary without an undergrad degree, which is a very obviously unconventional path. But my point is this, Jesus is trustworthy. Let him guide your job choices and career. And please listen, because I, I believe this is critical. Let him define success for your life. Do not allow the culture to define it for you. Ask Jesus what success looks like uh, for you in this season, no matter what your age is, and then ask him for help. And this actually leads me to the second cultural lie that I uh, that deeply affects. I, I think probably all of us here at Van City. It's a lie about what maturity and independence looks like. Um, our culture tells us that maturity looks like continually growing less dependent on our parents as we get older and more mature, and millennials are often targeted for not maturing fast enough in this way. You know, So, oh my gosh, you're still living with their parents, or no settled career into their 30s, and so on and so forth. It's drilled into our heads that we need to be independent adults that are self-sufficient. And Let me tell you, there's certainly a ton of truth in that. Um, but what seems to have happened is that paradigm is then implied to our apprenticeship to Jesus, that the more we mature, uh, the more skills and giftings that we develop through Jesus, the less functionally dependent we need to be on him. It's like we grow up and then move out of God's house only visiting on big occasions and holidays. It's a subtle, deep lie that makes a huge impact in our lives. And the result of this mentality is, in least, at least in large part, contributing to an amazing lack of prayer. Um, and when I uh, sit down with people and we talk through you know, what's going on with their life, issues, struggles, whatever it is, um, you know, I'll ask them if they have prayed about it, and it's very, very rare that they say yes in any meaningful way. Um, and this is in no way to guilt or shame any of you, um, because quite frankly, I'm I'm right there with you, even though I'm like a professional Christian. Uh, Jesus has convicted me deeply over this over the last few months, which then caused me to kind of do some self-reflection and kind of take notice of myself, and also. The people around us and go like, "What the heck are we doing?" Um, because maturity in following Jesus is not an increase in independence and self-sufficiency; it's the opposite, actually. It's growth in dependence on Jesus and an acknowledgement of our lack of prayer over life. If you've been around Van City for a while, you know that we talk about abiding in Jesus quite a bit, and it comes from John 15 when Jesus says this. Uh, I'll just read it to you guys I am the vine you are the branches if you remain in me and I in you you will bear much fruit and we're generally into that idea but forget what Jesus says next apart from me you can do nothing and it's not that we can't like function apart from Jesus it's that we can't serve our purpose which is to bear fruit Did you know there's actually scholarly debates over whether Christians should pray for good parking spots? Which is funny, my wife just did this the other night and she got one, so I think that might settle the debate. I don't know. It seems ridiculous, this whole debate thing, but I think the point is how dependent should we functionally be on Jesus? And, you know, I hesitate to take sides in such a a voracious debate, but what I'll say is this. Our problem is certainly not even close to being too dependent on Jesus, wherever you draw that line. And dependence on Jesus is firmly rooted in how we relate to God as Father. We are his children. He is our Father. And for all of you who have kids, you know the joy it is to provide for your children's needs. It really is a joy. And occasionally, it's also really annoying how dependent they are. Uh, Posey, my little one-and-a-half-year-old, has just started this new thing in the car. Uh, Hannah and I uh, are in the front seat, and Posey's sitting in the back seat, and then it starts, Mama, 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 Mama. And Hannah's like, uh, what? And Posey goes, buh, 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 which that's her mutated way of saying food. It's a sign language for food, but she gets very excited, I think, and does th- that's her thing. And so Hannah says, okay, okay, uh, Posey, we're on our way home, and, and we'll get some food, okay? And she says, "K." Mama, 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 mama. What? <laughs> okay, okay, we're almost home, then we'll eat some food, okay? K. Mama. Mama, mama, but then she changes her strategy, ta and I say, what? And it's like, okay, um, that's essentially our whole trip home. Um, <laughs> obviously, she's hungry, but she asks because she expects that we will be responsive to her needs. She can't get food herself, so she asks us because we're the ones who provide her with her food it's shameless acknowledgement and exercise of dependence and it's also trust that we will respond to her kids who are neglected and not fed do not ask for food like that fascinating that jesus in the new testament calls us children of god he is our father and we are his sons and daughters and i think we need to take seriously that we are his kids interesting isn't it, that Jesus taught his disciples to pray by addressing God as father and asking for food that day. Kind of reminds me of Posey, actually. Paul Miller, in his book, A Praying Life, which um, I would absolutely recommend to every single one of you. It was the book that I was reading through that Jesus really started this kind of like movement towards greater dependence on him. Paul Miller says this, What do I lose when I have a praying life? I'll just read it to you guys. Um, Control, independence. What uh, What do I gain? Friendship with God, a quiet heart, the living work of God in the hearts of those I love, the ability to roll back the tide of evil. Essentially, I lose my kingdom and get his. I move from being an independent player to a dependent lover. I move from being an orphan to a child of God. And this is a move that I'm, I'm striving for myself. Uh, I certainly have not mastered it <laughs> really at all. Um, and yet I'm also praying this for uh, us, for our church, for all of you guys. The first step in moving towards greater dependence on God is not buying Paul Miller's book or strategizing to fix the problem. Um, it's to ask for help. Ask your father for help. Confess where you're at with him and ask him to grow you. And, and that's universally step number one for all of us. And after you ask, see what he says. See what he does in response. If you don't see anything or hear anything, ask again, dada, dada, dada. Or from Galatians, Abba. Abba, Abba. He is our good father. To finish tonight, let me just read over you the father's heart for his people who struggle against lies in the kingdom of darkness. This is from Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to the images, to those elemental spiritual forces the gods who are not gods it was i who taught ephraim to walk taking them by the arms but they did not realize it was i who healed them i led them with cords of human kindness and ties of love to them i was like the one who lifts a little child to the cheek and i bent down to feed them god's response to our struggle with lies and unfaithfulness is healing. It's wrapping us in the kindness and love and lifting us close to him to feed us. It's a beautiful picture. Thanks for listening to the Van City podcast. You can find more teachings and resources or reach out to us at vancity.church. You can also help support Van City financially by going to vancity.church slash give.